Okay, so uh, really delighted, as I said earlier, that all of you are interested in diving into really what is the heart of the Buddha's teachings. And the, one of the reasons I chose this topic is that even though it is the core of what he taught, it's surprising how little emphasis it has been given, at least in Western um, approaches to the Dharma, where as a, as a broad stereotype, we tend to have put a lot more emphasis on the technology, the techniques of meditation, and not really so much emphasis on the context and all the other factors of the path, because as you might see there, there are eight path factors, and only two of them are directly related, sorry, three are directly related to meditation. And so it's interesting to me um, how we seem to have left that behind. And yet what the Buddha laid out here is really a very powerful holistic path that's designed to engage every aspect of our lives. So if we really want to access the full power and the depth of what he offered, we need to be working with and integrating and exploring all of the eight path factors, not just the meditation ones. So that's what I would like to offer over the course of these next six weeks. And to get a sense of just how central these teachings are to the Buddhist practice, as some of you may know, they come from the very first discourse, the very first sutta that it said the Buddha gave after his awakening, after he sat down under the Bodhi tree after seven years of very intensive practice. It said that he sat down under the Bodhi tree and uh, went through all kinds of challenges and then eventually uh, attained full awakening, nibbana, completely eradicated the unskillful energies of greed, of hatred or aversion, and of delusion or ignorance, completely uprooted them from his heart and mind. So immediately, well not immediately, some time after he'd spent uh, digesting what he just discovered, he decided that he would try to share these teachings with whoever might be able to understand them. And he thought of his five former companions. He went in search of them to offer them these teachings. These companions had um, abandoned him because he had, at that time, they were all practicing pretty hardcore asceticism together. And the Buddha was a very dedicated student, and he followed this, these practices to the point where he was near death before he realized, hmm, this isn't working so well. So according to the tradition, it's said that he then took some food from a, a young woman who was passing and found him near death. He recovered his strength and then went on to attain nibbana. Apparently, his five companions heard of this, him taking food, and felt like that was inappropriate and that he'd basically fallen off the path and become a backslider. So the Buddha knew that when he went to offer them these teachings, they probably were not going to be particularly receptive. So he tried to find a way to really help uh, make what he was sharing accessible, and he framed it in terms of a common 
medical model that was in use apparently in this time in northern India, a four-step process of understanding how to recognize, treat, and cure dis-ease. So this four-step model was first to identify what is the problem, to work out what was causing the problem, to work out how to treat the problem, and then to offer a prescription. So right from the very beginning, the Buddha saw himself as a healer. But what he's healing, what he's treating, is not only physical ailments, but the deepest possible dis-ease, disease, existential disease. That's really what he's offering here. And before he got there, he realized, um, again, because he was speaking to these companions who had been uh, very heavily into this, these ascetic practices, the first thing he told them was the importance of finding the middle way, the balance between the extremes on one hand of self-indulgence and on the other of self-torture. So these days, we tend not to be so much into physical self-torture, but as one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, has pointed out, what is very common is a form of psychological self-torture. So many of us have a tendency to self-aversion, to judgment, to perfectionism, to idealism, to uh, judging ourselves, um, getting lost in inadequacy, comparing, all of that kind of thing. We can think of these as aspects of psychological self-torture. So that's one extreme. And then the other extreme is self-indulgence, chasing after sense pleasures, Sometimes these days we hear the concept of self-care being used to rationalize self-indulgence. So you might notice in your own practice, well, I've been working hard, you know, it's probably more healthy for me to have a lie-in rather than getting up to meditate, or I'll, I'll meditate tomorrow, or I'll meditate at the weekend, or I'll go on retreat next month. And so we end up um, sliding more into the habit of self-indulgence. So this middle way is finding the balance between these two extremes. So I'd like to read you the actual uh, text which starts this sutta because even though the language is quite complex, it contains nuances that you don't always get just from hearing things paraphrased. And just to say up front, it's addressed to bhikkhus, which is traditionally translated as monks. But another of my teachers, Venerable Analio, he says this word bhikkhus really has a much wider reference and it refers to anyone who's following this path. So in this context, I'll translate the word bhikkhus as practitioners. There's also a reference in it to the Tathagata, which is a kind of a Buddhist tongue twister. The Tathagata is a title that the Buddha used to refer to himself. And one, it's a little bit of an abstract term, but one translator refers to it as the one attuned to reality. So that's how the Buddha referred to himself. I'll leave it untranslated here. So this is, these are the opening lines of the text. Practitioners, these two extremes should not be followed by one who has gone forth into homelessness 
or in other words, who is committed to this path. What to? The pursuit of sensual happiness and sensual pleasures, which is low, vulgar, the way of worldlings, ignoble, unbeneficial. And the pursuit of self-mortification, which is painful, ignoble, unbeneficial. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata has awakened to the middle way, which gives rise to vision, which gives rise to knowledge, which leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. So that's a pretty powerful statement that this middle way between these two extremes leads directly to peace. And this is the purpose of all of the effort that we're making is to train ourselves in this path that leads towards happiness, ease, peace, and freedom. And yet, for many of us, this middle way that the Buddha is pointing to is quite elusive. So I think many of us have a very common tendency to swing between extremes of making too much effort and then collapsing back into exhausted apathy, and then again rising up, making too much effort again. So welcome. Sorry, oh, no worries. Help yourself to a cushion and a or a chair, whatever you need. And I will just uh, continue. So we have this tendency, which I've seen in myself and also in many students, it's so common that I started to think of it as what I call superhero to slug syndrome, where we put in 110% effort, which of course isn't sustainable, and then collapse into exhausted apathy. We take a period to sort of regroup, and then again, far too much effort. So we're swinging between these two extremes all the time. We see this on retreat, and we can see it when we're off retreat, and we come into daily life, Often we're very inspired on retreat and we set, we come into daily life. I'm going to sit for an hour and a half every morning, an hour and a half every evening. Maybe it lasts a day, maybe two, if you're lucky a week, and then it's too much effort. So then we stop completely. We seem to be very binary, dualistic creatures and we get caught in all or nothing, black or white, good or bad. And so this what the middle way that the Buddha is pointing to is for many of us quite uh, foreign territory. We really need to be looking at that for ourselves. How do we find that more balanced, sustainable energy? So fortunately, the Buddha didn't just say, find the middle way. He defined it for us, and he actually defined the middle way as the Noble Eightfold Path. So again, I'll read you the words from the Sutta. He says, And what, practitioners, is that middle way, awakened to by the Tathagata, which gives rise to vision, to peace, to Nibbana? It is this Noble Eightfold Path, that is, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. This, practitioners, is that middle way 
awakened to by the Tathagata, which gives rise to vision, which gives rise to knowledge, which leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbāna. Now, it's possible that uh, for some people, when we hear words like direct knowledge and enlightenment and Nibbāna, that those words might sound quite abstract or even meaningless. But in the very next part of the sutta, the Buddha went on to describe why we do this in terms of the Four Noble Truths. And he was very clear that these teachings are offered as a way to engage in our lives in a way that leads to ease, happiness, peace, and freedom. They're intended to be very practical. They're not, the Buddha was not interested in offering metaphysical speculations or philosophical debates or mystical kind of, um, theories about the nature of the universe, fortunately, because my, my particular mind doesn't work well with that kind of stuff. He was very clear in elsewhere. He's said to have said, all I teach is suffering and how to end suffering. So as I said earlier, with these um, four noble truths, they were offered in terms of this medical model of healing. And again, just to name that when we hear all this talk of suffering, it can be easy to think, well, I'm not really suffering. You know, there's things that aren't perfect in my life, but compared to what a lot of people are dealing with, I'm doing pretty well, actually. But again, this word suffering, uh, it's an early translation when the teachings first came into English. It's uh, a, teach, a translation that we've inherited, but these days a lot of scholars and translators are questioning it being translated as suffering because it really refers to, like many Pali words, Pali being the language that the Buddha's teachings are translated from, it has a lot more nuances than can be captured in just one single English word. So in English, uh, the Buddha starts by defining dukkha in this way. I'll read you this time from a translation by Bhikkhu Moli. This is how the first noble truth is translated. So Bhikkhu Moli says, Suffering as a noble truth is this. Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Sickness is suffering. Death is suffering. Sorrow and lamentation, pain, grief and despair are suffering. Association with the loathed is suffering. Dissociation from the loved is suffering. Not to get what one wants is suffering. In short, suffering is the five categories of clinging objects. So for those of you who are familiar with Buddhist terminology, that last phrase is the five aggregates. And just in that one paragraph, we could spend the next six weeks exploring that. There's so much in it. But the key point I want to make for now is that suffering includes more than just those uh, extreme anguish states. Just not getting what we want is also suffering. 
And I understand that the Pali word translated as suffering, dukkha, which is what I've written up here, that this word dukkha etymologically refers to the way an axle doesn't fit so well in the hole of the wheel that it's trying to turn. So back in ancient India, you may have seen, uh, some, even in use today, those carts that have solid wooden wheels with a square hole and an axle going in. If that axle hole doesn't fit well, we get a bumpy ride. And so this word dukkha is pointing also to just that basic unsatisfactoriness. So these days, dukkha is often translated as unsatisfactoriness. So it's everything from extreme anguish on one end right through to just that sense of basic unease or discomfort. So for example, right now, is anybody here completely, utterly, 100% comfortable, satisfied and at ease? No, you know, when we really look, there's always a sense of, oh, if I could have just had another coffee before I got here. Oh, if only the trains had been running on time. Oh, if only she'd stop using all these words and talking about these numbered lists. And uh, if only I could wrap my mind around this a little bit quicker. There's always something that's not quite right. Just that sense of lack of if only then I'd be happy. And that also is Dukkha, that's what the Buddha is referring to. So Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's an American scholar monk and has done a huge amount of translation of the Pali Canon, he says, the Buddha starts with what is close at hand, with the suffering inherent in the physical process of life itself. Here, Dukkha shows up as the events of birth and aging and death, in our susceptibility to sickness accidents and injuries, even in hunger and thirst. It appears again in our inner reactions to disagreeable situations and events, in the sorrow, anger, frustration and fear aroused by painful separations, by unpleasant encounters, and by the failure to get what we want. Even our pleasures, the Buddha says, are not immune from dukkha, they give us happiness while they last, but they don't last forever. Eventually, they must pass away. And when they go, the loss leaves us feeling deprived. Our lives, for the most part, are strung out between the thirst for pleasure and the fear of pain. We pass our days running after the one and running away from the other, seldom enjoying the peace of contentment. Real satisfaction seems somehow always out of reach, just beyond the next horizon. Then, in the end, we have to die, to give up the identity we spent our whole life building, to leave behind everything and everyone we love. So what's it like to hear that stated so boldly? No, this is not the message we normally get in mainstream society. But fortunately, the Buddha didn't just tell it like it is and then leave us to it. As I say in America, he didn't just say, suck it up. <laughs> he actually went on to give the second, third, and fourth noble truths. So there is good news here. He identified that there's a cause of dukkha, 
And this cause of dukkha is craving. So here's Nyanamoli's translation of the second noble truth. The origin of suffering as a noble truth is this. It is the craving that produces renewal of being accompanied by enjoyment and lust and enjoying this and that. In other words, craving for sensual desires, craving for being, craving for non-being. Now again, craving is another very strong word and we might think, well, sure, there's things I want, but I don't crave. But again, it's pointing to any form of clinging, of holding on, of wanting, or of rejecting, resisting, and not wanting. So it's not that the Buddha is saying we should never have any sense pleasure, that we shouldn't enjoy when sense pleasures arise, but it's to see sometimes that when they arise, there's that tendency, oh, this is great, if only this could stay around a little bit longer, and we have that kind of grasping clinging, craving. This is what he's pointing to. And obviously it happens on subtle levels and at times on very intense levels. So this craving also includes the craving for being. That's pointing to the way we tend to identify with our experiences and make it who we are. Craving to be someone, to be seen, to be recognized and acknowledged. There's also the craving for the opposite, at times fear of being seen, not wanting to be someone, not wanting to stand out, or that motivation just to pull the covers up over our heads and go back to bed indefinitely. That too is an example of craving. So the first two noble truths are really to do with what's difficult with dukkha, and then the next two are about and the good news of how we can free ourselves from them. So the third noble truth, and again, sometimes uh, because the noble truths are framed in terms of suffering, it can give the impression that Buddhism is a somehow pessimistic uh, teaching. And we can hear all this talk of suffering and craving and feel a little bit discouraged. But the next two truths, as I say, are really about the end of suffering. <coughs> Excuse me. So the third noble truth, the good news is that there's a cure for dukkha. It's a treatable condition. And so again, Nyanamoli's translation, cessation of suffering as a noble truth is this. It is remainderless fading and ceasing, giving up, relinquishing, letting go and rejecting of that same craving. So letting go of craving is the cure, not expecting anything or anyone to make us permanently happy and not clinging to a fixed sense of self. This is me, this is mine, this is who I am. The identity that we've spent our whole life building, as Bhikkhu Bodhi refers to it, letting go of holding so tightly to all of that. Which, of course, is much easier said than done. So again, uh, fortunately, the Buddha gave us an actual prescription of how to do this. And this is the fourth noble truth. The way leading to the cessation of suffering as a noble truth is this. 
It is simply the Noble Eightfold Path. That is to say, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Okay, so finally we've got to the Noble Eightfold Path. And of course, we're going to be going into these eight path factors in more detail over the next uh, five weeks. So in a few minutes, I'll give just a brief description of each one to get us started. And then we'll go into them in more depth uh, subsequently. But just to say before we start that the word right, again, can have some unfortunate flavors in English It's a translation of the Pali word sama. And in English, when we hear right, because of our, uh, many of us have a Judeo-Christian heritage, it's hard not to think in terms of right and wrong, good and bad, black and white. And so all of these rights can um, bring up quite a moralistic flavor. And that's really not what the Buddha is pointing to here. So... Uh, Gil Fransdell, he says, this word sama can also mean proper, complete, and in harmony. When right is the translation, it's useful to think of it as meaning appropriate, as when we speak of having the right tool for a particular task. Because the path is made up of practices rather than beliefs, right does not refer to truths that we're obliged to adopt or to moralistic judgments of right and wrong. So I'll stick with the conventional translation of right, but do your best to think of it as appropriate or wise. Uh, some teachers these days use wise um, as, an, as a translation instead of right. So particularly with this first factor of right view, You might think of it uh, more as appropriate view or wise view. And there are many different nuances to right view, which we'll be talking about more next week. But one basic definition is that it's the understanding, the discernment of what leads to harm and what leads to freedom, to ease. Very basic. It's framed also in terms of understanding the Four Noble Truths. So we've already, just by hearing these Four Noble Truths, started to develop this path factor of right view. So it's really pointing to the understanding of do do these thoughts, these actions, this speech lead in the direction of harm or do they lead in the direction of freedom? And the second path factor of right intention is also commonly translated as right thought and sometimes right resolve. And here in this context, it has quite a specific definition of three intentions. The intention of renunciation or simplicity. The intention of goodwill, of metta, of kindness. And the intention of harmlessness. So these three intentions are intended to counteract unskillful intentions of greed, of, um, what's the word, ill will 
and of harmfulness. So you can see, in a way, greed and hatred are being counteracted by renunciation or simplicity and the cultivation of goodwill of metta. And then the last one, this fundamental intention towards harmlessness, non-harming. This is sometimes linked to compassion. So when we have more of a grounding in these three intentions, these are a, a support for the third path factor, which is right speech. And on the most basic level, this means not lying. It's a commitment to telling the truth. But the Buddha also defines right speech as abstaining from false speech, abstaining from slanderous speech, abstaining from harsh speech, and abstaining from idle chatter. So we can begin to refine this path factor on deeper and deeper levels. And in a similar way, right speech, uh, right action then, is referring to our bodily expression. And again, it's asking us to notice, to pay attention to our behavior in the world and to abstain from taking life, to abstain from taking what is not given or not stealing, and to abstain from sexual misconduct. So those of you who are familiar with retreats and the Buddha's teachings more broadly, you might recognize the five training precepts in there, the commitment to abstain from killing, stealing, um, sexual misconduct, lying, and taking intoxicants. So there's a very powerful ethical basis to the path. And then this factor of right action is expanded in right livelihood, where the Buddha really is inviting us to look at how are we earning our living? Because most of us spend a lot of our day engaged in earning a living or perhaps taking care of family members or their um so to notice how are we spending our time, how are we earning our money. And Bhikkhu Bodhi says, for a lay disciple, the Buddha teaches that wealth should be gained in accordance with certain standards. One should acquire it only by legal means, not illegally. One should acquire it peacefully, without coercion or violence. One should acquire it honestly, not by trickery or deceit. And one should acquire it in ways which do not entail harm and suffering for others. So these previous three path factors of right speech, right action, right livelihood are all in the terrain of ethics. And then the last three, as I mentioned earlier, are specifically in relation to our meditation practice. So right effort is the wise application of energy in our meditation practice. And as I mentioned earlier, this superhero to slug syndrome, you could say is a way that energy is being used without the supporting factor of um, the wisdom of right view, the strength of right effort. So we need to make sure that our energy, our effort, is used in the service of overcoming unskillful mental states and strengthening skillful ones. This is a basic definition of right effort. Noticing what's happening in the mind, strengthening skillful qualities, releasing unskillful ones. 
And then right mindfulness focuses on the mental faculty known as sati in Pali. And this is our capacity for presence of mind, to know what we're doing as we're doing it without reactivity. And as most of you know, these days mindfulness is becoming more and more mainstream. But not all of the mindfulness that's offered uh, more broadly could be classified as right mindfulness. So I'm thinking, for example, of mindfulness coloring books. I'm not sure that mindfully coloring flowers and mandalas is going to lead us to the deepest ease and peace and freedom. But I haven't actually tried it, so perhaps I, I shouldn't say. But right mindfulness here is really grounded in right view in this understanding that what we're doing is in the service of the deepest freedom of heart and mind. It's in the service of developing wisdom and compassion. That's what makes it uh, right mindfulness. And then lastly, right concentration, samadhi. Again, some translators have named that the word concentration in English can have connotations of this kind of furrowed brow fixating on an object, which actually isn't what's being pointed to here. It's uh, to really develop a deeper samadhi, we need to relax and to naturally let the mind settle and stabilize and absorb. So uh, samadhi might more usefully translate it as unification of mind or deep stability of mind. It's that capacity to absorb into the meditation object. So some teachers translate it as indistractability, deep steadiness. And again, sometimes when we attain these states of strong samadhi, they can be very pleasurable. But again, they're not intended as an end in themselves. They're intended as tools to help us keep moving along this noble eightfold path. So that's a very brief overview of all eight. And as I said, we will be uh, exploring them in more detail over the coming weeks. But I wanted to just give you an overview enough to be able to engage in some small group practice now. So thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.